Drew Alford, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearances, his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does on every edition. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. The sort of data which reveal decline, or at the very least, some manner of trouble with the player's approach, both the pitchers and the batters. On Monday, Owen Watson wrote about Jordano Ventura and his troubles, and he looked at those troubles through the lens both of average fastball velocity and also release point, where a lower release point might be indicative of trouble. Ventura, of course, has recorded a higher walk rate this year than strikeout rate, something that's rare, very rare, for a qualified pitcher. Last week, Dave Cameron used the data to examine Troy Tulowitzki's difficulties, and in particular examined Tulowitzki's contact rate on pitches within the strike zone. The decline in that measure, perhaps indicative of declining skills, where Tulowitzki's offensive production is concerned. And then also exit velocity. That's also declined for Tulowitzki. Much of the pod is dedicated to this idea, what we can learn from some of this granular data, how it relates to slumps, injuries, etc. Also in the program, we arrive by some means, I forget exactly, but by some means at this highly personal revelation care of Dave Cameron. We actually had one of our neighbors a couple of years ago dressed up as our dog for Halloween. Dark confessions like that one, and also that specific dark confession in what follows. What's following more immediately, of course, is the sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. Logic dictates that at least a portion of listeners are also the sort of people who would attend live sporting events or concerts and are therefore the sort of people who have been frustrated attempting to buy tickets to live sporting events or concerts. Perhaps try SeatGeek? Here's a service SeatGeek provides. What they do is to aggregate tickets that are available on multiple sites, many sites spanning the internet to present them all at one place so that you can get a maximum deal. It's also possible to set alerts for those events that you'd like to attend. SeatGeek will inform you when they have reached the lowest possible prices. What else SeatGeek does is to assess a grade to every ticket based on its value so that you can better exploit the inefficiencies in the market that is secondary ticket sales. And perhaps best of all, maybe best of all, one might suggest that best of all, SeatGeek only ever quotes you and charges you one price from the beginning to the end of your transaction. Unlike StubHub, unlike sites, for example, StubHub, SeatGeek does not assess huge fees at checkout. For enduring the sponsor's message, Fangraph's audio listeners receive a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. Download the free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today or at your nearest possible convenience. The which now the sponsor's message is complete and we turn to a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? This Fangraphs audio. Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. Sounded better in my car. I'm trying it up a room. <clears throat> I'm sure that there are uh, certain people listening to this who like the idea of you trudging out to your car every week. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, what are you? What are you just writing? You were something about the Cardinals. Looks like. Uh, yeah, I wrote a post about how the Cardinals have uh, devil magic their way to um, 
significantly better records than expected over the last few years, and now that magic has turned on them, and uh, they are the least, or I guess the most underperforming team relative to base runs to start this 2016 season. Right, which is what? Uh, mainly this uh, identifies sequencing? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not just sequencing. So, like, uh, there's basically, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define sequencing. If you think of sequencing as, like, the... Uh, timing of your hits in order to get runs or the timing of your outs in order to prevent them. And the Cardinals actually haven't been that bad at that. Uh, they've outscored their opponents by 50 runs this year. So it's not necessarily that uh, scoring or preventing runs has been the problem. They've just uh, inefficiently distributed those runs. They've won a bunch of blowouts and they've lost a bunch of close games. And this is kind of the old uh, classic underperforming your Pythagorean record story. You don't really have a choice though, right? Uh, when you score the runs. I mean, I guess you could score less if you wanted to, but yeah, it's hard. right. You you could decide to stop scoring. <laughs> yeah, but when your your opponent usually is trying to uh, is trying to score. Actually, I was I was I forget who it was, but I was speaking with a friend, a friend um, whose father, or no no no, a friend who's it was a student in his class, and his student said that his theory for the Red Sox, because I live in New England. What the Red Sox should do is win their first 10 games, and then they could go 500 the rest of the year and still probably qualify for the postseason. Um, and I noticed that this is not uh, this is not an isolated example. You see frequently, um, even at the major league level, broadcasters will suggest that it's a team should attempt to score first. Yeah. But uh, they but the also other attempt to score second. What's that? Third. They should also attempt to score second and third. Fifth. Yeah, they should, right, yeah. You should score all the time. You should score as often as possible. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, um, the, I guess I don't know, understand where it comes from. Because anyone, I think I would assume that anyone who's played the sport would know that you're trying your hardest all the time. Although maybe there's a sense, maybe there's a sense that if you really buckle down, that you could do better. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what the genesis of this is, but there is definitely a trend or a, an idea among fans and, you know, probably broadcasters too and people who watch the games to draw some kind of um, conclusion about a player's character and work ethic based on the results of their performance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, so I was talking with a neighbor and a neighbor's friend uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, they're both Cubs fans, and, uh, you know, Cubs having a pretty good start to the season. I think they're 27-8 and eight at this point. Uh, but, they, you know, they had a good year last year and went out in the postseason. And the uh, fan, the friend who I was talking to, um, not a big fan grass reader, I'm going to ascertain, mm-hmm. uh, went on to explain that they just uh, gave up in the second round because they were happy to have been there, and they didn't actually want it anymore. And that they they didn't possess the will to win. They were just uh, satisfied with what they had accomplished, and they were just ready to go home. Which was like a sweeping conclusion about a bunch of people he'd never met before, <laughs> based on nothing besides the fact that the Mets pitching staff, which is amazing, shut them down for four games. Um, but people really like to draw these conclusions, and I don't know why. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this. Maybe at some level it's because there are a lot of – well, first of all, there's a lot of, I mean, whether it's grasped by base runs or not, there's just a lot of chance at work yeah. because you generally have people, I mean, because the difference even between the best and the worst baseball players is like relatively minimal, right? Between the worst major league baseball player and the best 
like high school athlete or something like that. Yeah, right. It's a pretty low distribution. I mean, the distribution, the very, the, the, the range of it is pretty low. Yeah. And so there's a lot that can happen so far as that's concerned. So you have a lot of randomness and that's, I mean, randomness is terrifying and, uh, it's really antithetical to the way that the brain likes to arrange facts. And then I guess beyond that too, like a lot of the things, a lot of the thi- like, you know, a lot of coverage usually is dedicated to the emotional aspect because that's something that everyone understands. But some of the nuances regarding mechanics, uh, you know, both on the pitching or hitting sides, uh, or just, you know, spray charts that I think it's hard to convey that in a way that has any emotional resonance. Yeah. I mean, people definitely like to believe that the game is much more about how you feel and how you, uh, how much you want things and what it probably actually is, is like, Baseball's just really hard. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Swinging a bat at a ball going 98 miles an hour and getting the outcome you want from that every single time is uh, not reasonable. No, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. No, it's difficult. Um, actually, on this topic of – so the Cardinals what? So the Cardinals – has anything really changed except just the outcomes then? I mean, you know, like uh, the names have changed a little bit. They didn't have Jeremy Hazelbaker hitting home runs last year. <laughs> but it's a, is it Jeremy Hazelbaker's fault that they're all of a sudden yes. not Yes, Jeremy <laughs> Hazelbaker and Alendis Diaz. These guys are the problem. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I think uh, what we've basically seen is like Randall Grichik has been atrocious in clutch hitting situations last year uh, or this year. Last year he was one of the best hitters in baseball. Um, you know, it's likely that Grichik will find a nice – in between spot between those two, he's not going to be as good as he was this year or last year. He will be better than he has been the first six weeks of this year. Um, most likely, the Cardinals are just a, a good team, not quite at the Cubs level, uh, who will play you know 550, 560 baseball going forward. The problem is now through a quarter of their season, they played 520 baseball while the Cubs have played 800 baseball. Mm-hmm, yeah. So now winning the division uh, when they only have 75% of the season left to go, and they now have to outplay the Cubs by eight games is going to be really hard even if this uh, underperforming situation goes away. No, but the, the Cardinals last year, weren't they among the top teams in terms of record relative to base run record? They outperformed by 11 wins last year, yeah. Right, and so if we, I think that if they had matched their base runs record last year, like they they wouldn't have qualified for the playoffs, would they have? Correct. The okay. last couple of years, their postseason uh, qualifications have been based largely on the fact that they've outperformed. Okay. Right, and we don't know if there's some sort of magic behind that or not. I mean, or, that's kind of the that's the running joke, right? Is right. That the Cardinals have this devil magic that they can, you know, uh, if someone gets hurt, they can call some random white guy up from Double A and be like, "Oh, look at this guy, he's amazing now." It's Jeremy Hazelbaker. No one had ever heard of him, and now he's slugging 800. Uh, but also, part of it was that you know the Cardinals had amazing clutch pitching uh, last year, and a couple of years before that, they had amazing clutch hitting. Like They just keep right. seeming to do not even the same thing, but different things that we keep saying, oh, you can't do that over and over, and then they just find new things to do, except for not this year. Or they could seemingly install at shortstop, re- reluctantly install at shortstop, um, a, a Cuban player that they signed a couple of years ago, who then, what, I mean, hits almost as many home runs as he records strikeouts. Yeah, or has, has errors. <laughs> well, that's the, true, the, yeah. the negative way to look at it. But right, I mean, like, you know, I don't think their plan heading into the season was that they were going to rely on a Ledmus Diaz to hit 400 for the first six weeks of the season. Right. And uh, happening nonetheless, the, the, Cub, the Cubs we discussed uh, in some depth last week uh, remain strong. Dexter Fowler, I think, finally has more strikeouts than walks, but it took a while. Yeah, he um, wasn't going to hit 400 all year. Right, okay, seems fair enough. Hey, you know, we were just talking about, uh, we were just discussing briefly 
<clears throat> some of these uh, some of these mechanical aspects that are difficult to relate, maybe um, especially on you know like a television or radio broadcast, but which do receive some attention at FanGraphs um, and are probably relevant to those people who would listen to this program as well. For example, um, uh, Owen Watson has mm-hmm. just written for us a piece about Jordano Ventura. Yeah. Who, who like, um, <laughs> like Dexter Fowler up till a couple days ago, um, currently is recording a higher walk rate than a strikeout rate. Uh, but that's it's a negative. So <laughs> it's a negative for pitcher. I think that zero qualified starters did it last year. Yeah. And, it's rare for them to do it ever because if you're allowing more walks than you are striking out batters, then it, you're probably not putting your – you're probably allowing a lot of runs, and you're also not pitching that deep into games. Yeah, you're not going to be allowed to pitch enough innings to qualify, right. if, especially in this day and age where the average strikeout-to-walk ratio is now pushing three. Uh, if you're at one or close to one, you're going to end up in the minor leagues. Right. I feel like there were pitchers in like the – certainly the 80s and the 90s like sinker ballers who would be able to stick around. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like J- Jason Simon Tachi, I bet I bet did it one time. Probably. Do you remember that name? I do. I remember the name. I wouldn't have remembered his strike. I bet Jason issue. Simon Tachi did it one time. I cannot I go I will I will verify it or not by the end of the podcast. Um <clears throat> I'm on pins and needles. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you have a weird it's not a very comfortable spot. No, that's right. We talked about would have been a better choice. We talked about flooring last week, and you appear to have chosen pins and needles for one of your rooms. Yeah, is uh, you know, this is the room where we put the guests we don't like. Okay. Uh, uh, um, Watson discusses in a, a couple of different ways to look at, um, or discusses a couple of different ways to look at Ventura. What might be responsible for his problems, and some of these are at this this interesting intersection, right between. The scouting mechanical side and the, the, the sort of the data heavy side because we have pitch FX and statcast data, right? Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if you would co- kind of go through some of it. Obviously, if, if you're attempting to evaluate changes in a, in a pitcher, velocity is a, is a place to start. The easiest one to look at. Right. And when is, when is a velocity decrease, uh, representative and not representative of, of a possible injury? Um, well, I think, so it, it's hard to say, like, you know, at this point, this is injury, this is void, it's not. I think what we know is that pitchers generally tend to pitch uh, slower earlier in the year, and then they build up velocity as the year goes along. So you don't want to freak out about a small velocity loss in April relative to, like, their pre their previous year season velocity loss. If a, guy, or if a guy was throwing 93 one year and he throws 92.5 next April, not a big deal. Everyone does that, or a lot of pitchers do that anyway. Uh, I think what we've noticed is that pitchers who have really large sudden velocity losses are almost always hurt. So if you're like throwing 93 one start and 88 the next start, that's a really bad sign. Uh, so if you just see a giant cliff where a guy stops throwing anywhere close to what he's historically thrown, um, that's a big red flag. Uh, Wait, can I interrupt you for a second? Because I was is there any significance to a similar increase in velocity? What well, That might mean for injury. For example, um, Oakland – employs a right-handed pitcher, sometimes in the major league level, sometimes at AAA, named Jesse Hahn. Yeah. Hahn, I think he, what, he's known for having a pretty excellent, at least aesthetically pleasing curveball. Right? Yes, correct. So 2004, Hahn averaged about 91 miles per hour on his fastball. Right. 2015, 92. In two starts this year, 94 miles per hour. 
Um, so you say, well, Jesse Hahn's throwing harder. And this is, of course, only as April velocities compared to full season velocities the previous years. Dude, what, what, if anything, would a velocity spike indicate? Uh, so that's less well-known. Uh, sometimes you just see pitchers who get stronger, and this has actually been a trend over the last few years. This velocity has been trending up, so you have guys who, um, you know, used to sit in the 80s and now sit in the 90s. I think uh, what I wrote about Jose Quintana a couple weeks ago, I've noted his velocity has gone up basically every season that he's been in baseball. Right. He broke in as, like, a guy who threw 90, and now he's sitting 93. Um, and he's also, so are, I think he's produced the second highest war among all pitchers yeah. too. Jose Quintana, now better because he throws harder and he hasn't gotten hurt. Um, so there's no hard and fast rule that says like, once you start throwing harder, uh, you're gonna get injured. It is certainly possible though that guys who are throwing harder are potentially, uh, compromising their mechanics in order to do so, or they are, you know, throwing like more of a max effort delivery, and perhaps there's a correlation between Guys who are attempting to throw harder, maybe a guy like Jesse Hahn, who has bounced between AAA and the majors and is trying to stick in the big leagues, uh, might say, you know what, I'm not concerned about my long-term health as much. I want to become a good major league pitcher and I'll just figure out my health when I get there. Uh, and once I've kind of established myself as a big leaguer, perhaps he's increasing the strain on his arm in order to try and find a little extra out of fastball. Um, you know, I think the large, uh, or the, probably the, the best answer is we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Which but, is a super satisfying answer. <laughs> so other ele- other elements. Uh, one one um, addressed by uh, Watson is Ventura's arm slot. Yeah. Or his arm, his uh, his release point. Yeah. Now, what do we know about the changes about changes in release point and what they might signify? So I think the research done uh, most notably by Jeff Zimmerman uh, shows that if you are regularly, uh, if you have a large variance in your release point, that's bad. Um, and it is often a sign of a pitcher who's pitching injured. So um, sometimes what pitchers who are having arm problems will do is they will try and drop their arm angle in order to reduce the strain on their arm. Like, uh, so, you know, I think Bronson Arroyo, who's currently trying to come back from uh, shoulder injury has now decided to throw sidearm because he said it doesn't hurt that bad if you throw a sidearm. So you can kind of take some of the strain off your shoulder if you don't throw as uh, directly overhand. Um, so if you see a guy who's maybe moved from three quarters down to like, you know, closer to the sidearm position, he might be trying to compensate for an arm injury. And that isn't necessarily going to make him less effective, is it? Well, it'll most likely make him less effective against opposite-handed hitters. So side armors are basically notorious for having huge platoon splits because they give the opposite-handed hitter a really good look at the ball, and mm-hmm. the ball is often diving in on a opposite-handed hitter, um, and it seems like balls coming into a hitter uh, go out at a very high rate of speed. Is there is it an exact correlation? So say I have uh, say on the one hand I have here well they both play for the same team right so Brad Ziegler Ziegler yeah. well of course he's almost underhand yeah he's very low to the ground right but he of course he's you know sidearm submarine even yeah um and then Josh Kalmenter uh-huh the most over the top yeah. i think Josh Kalmenter right has the it's it's almost like neutral right it's not yeah. uh, it's almost directly over the top does that mean Kalmenter does that lend him to having zero is it like a zero uh, uh, platoon split? Uh, so, if yeah. Um, essentially, the more over-the-top you throw, the more likely you are to not have a large platoon split. Uh, and the further down to one side or the other that you throw, the larger your likely platoon split. Ziegler um, has turned himself into a good reliever over his career, um, but has uh, been better against right-handers than left-handers. I think Darren O'Day is probably like the one... 
uh, sidearming guy who doesn't have a huge platoon split, uh, but most of them are specialists. Like maybe you remember Mike Myers, the left-handed specialist with the Red Sox for years and years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, he basically had one skill, come in and be death on left-handers from a, you know, very difficult angle for lefties, and he couldn't get right-handed up to save his life. Certainly, uh, yeah, Javier Lopez. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of these guys who are kind of one batter specialists because they, if if forced to face a series of opposite-handed hitters, they will get crushed. This is a simple-minded question, but the term, but most of the, the ones I ask are uh, the the term "lugi," of course, is popular. "Rugi" exists, but yeah. it does not seem as though one is able to um, create a career off of being a "rugi" to the same degree that one can a "lugi." Uh, I mean, I think what we see is kind of like sinker slider right-handers who are um, end up just being basically being setup men. So they're instead of being like specialists because there are more right-handed hitters and left-handed hitters, these guys who have you know larger than average platoon splits from the right side end up getting cast as like seventh or eighth inning guys, and often they're the kinds of guys who get labeled as like, oh, he's a good reliever, but he doesn't have the mindset to close because if you come in in the ninth inning and you don't get to choose who you're going up against, oftentimes you'll have to face a string of left-handed hitters. Uh, so I think, like, Jeff Nelson is maybe a good example. Of this, I was right? going to say Jeff Nelson. Uh, Jeff Nelson, like, you know, 6'8", basically dropped down through a ton of sliders from the right side, uh, was a very good reliever for a very long time. Uh, but every time any team tried to put him in the closer role, he failed, in large part because he was so much better against righties than lefties. Right. Very good against righties. It was amazing against righties and yeah. just okay against lefties. Because he was probably frightening to face, right? I mean, a six-eight guy falling off towards, like, behind you, essentially, and then throwing from behind your back in the high 90s, that could not have been fun. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I'd much rather I'd much rather sit on my couch. <laughs> yeah, it pays, it pays less. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's true. I guess the pay is different, but the comfort factor is much higher. Um, all right, so, so we've talked about that. We've talked about release point. We talked about velocity. Um, are there any other indicators? I mean, anything else at which you would want to look, um, in which maybe Watson has, at which he has looked, um, that would you say, well, what's different about this guy? Um, I mean, I think, like, the, you know, the, the thing with Ventura is he's kind of had an up-and-down career, right? So, like, last year at one point, um, his ERA was pretty terrible, while his underlying purples were pretty good, and I think the Royals... Uh, we're considering sending them to the minor leagues uh, at one point, and they were like, you know, uh, late in the season, one of the reasons they traded for Johnny Cueto is they really didn't trust in Ventura. Um, so I think, like, even when he's going well, he hasn't been, you know, a dominating number one who's giving them a lot of confidence. And now it's like the peripherals are also gone. He's walking guys. The strikeouts are missing. Um, I think Ventura is probably one of these guys who's going to have a short shelf life in the big leagues because... Uh, He's very reliant on his stuff. This is not a guy who is really dominating hitters um, or, you know, uh, performing well when he doesn't have, uh, you know, his best stuff. And right now he doesn't have his best stuff, and he doesn't have great command, and he doesn't seem to be uh, that fantastic at pitching without uh, top-tier stuff. So my guess is Ventura is going to have uh, a shorter career than you might expect from a guy who came up with his hype. Would you be surprised if Jordano Ventura... Uh, in the end, ended up having a career that looked very similar to that uh, of Ubaldo Jimenez. Uh, no, that's not a terrible com- comparison. Oh, that's like the nicest compliment you've ever. Yeah, heard. that's the best thing I can say about you. <laughs> yeah, uh, because well, and Jimenez, of course, 
has has survived somehow, but with with much diminished diminished. Stuff. I mean, his velocity is down like six miles per hour relative, or seven even relative to peak Jimenez. When came, yeah, when he came up, he was throwing a hundred. Yeah, he was, and he, and, and he was f- fantastic. Yeah. Um, and lots I think of movement, that, lots of sync. Yeah, and uh, survived for the most part in Colorado until yeah. I guess uh, what some diminished velocity. And he does seem to have gone through uh, fits and starts where I guess what he's essentially becoming. Uh, he's he is adjusting to the um, a decline in arm speed. Uh, yeah, I mean I think this is Jimenez is one of those guys who you look at and be like, he's good enough to pitch in the big leagues. The stuff is still, you know, better than a lot of guys, even if it's not what it was a few years ago. There's still movement on it. Um, I think if you look at Ventura, is he going to get as many ground balls as Menez did? Probably not. Uh, and that's kind of the thing that keeps Menez around is he's been able to, you know, keep the ball down. And um, I, I think it's not a terrible comparison, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if Ventura actually ended up as like a reliever in the in the not too distant future, especially if the Royal I mean the Royals right now have like no starting pitching, so they can't afford to move Ventura to the bullpen. But if they can find a couple of good arms over the next year or so, I wouldn't be shocked if Jordano Ventura kind of went the Wade Davis route and uh you know had more success in relief than he did as the rotation. Right. Uh <clears throat> we're talking about uh, some sort of uh, some data driven indicators uh, for pitchers and and uh, especially pitchers who are exhibiting um, some decline or, you know, uh, some sort of uh, poor performance. This is also, of course, uh, you can do something similar for batters. You wrote about Troy Tulowitzki, I believe on Friday it was. Yeah, I wrote about how terrible he was, and then he had a huge weekend. Oh, he did? Okay, all right. So I did not uh, I did not know the latter thing. Well, what did he do this weekend? He hit some homers. Okay, all right. But his I, overall line is still... Yeah, it's still, he's still not having a good year. It's right. It's still a poor relative to his career. And you, I think that um, one indicator upon which um, you touched, you, you you examined in some depth, was zone contact rate. Yeah. So this is essentially, and this makes sense, contact rate on pitches that are thrown in the zone. Yeah, it's a self-explanatory definition. Right. And uh, you, you sort of highlight this. What do, what do we know about about zone contact rate and say a decline in zone contact rate as as an indicator of of you know f- future difficulties for a player? Yes. So it's not the kind of thing that we have a uh, a full study on that shows like a one percentage point de, you know point decline in in Z contact equals a twenty point decline in woba. Uh, we could potentially do that study. We just haven't done it uh, to date. Uh, but I think what we've seen is that this is a um, a sign of aging, right? So, like, the guys who um, uh, move the wrong direction in zone contact are usually older players. Like, uh, so I noticed Tulowitzki was basically in the same uh, group as, like, David Wright, who's a 33-year-old battling back problems. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the kinds of guys who, uh, you know, early in their career had really good, uh, you know, above-average zone contact scores, and they were able to hit for power. And it seems like as they've tried to hit for power now – uh, they have to, um, they're having to maybe make adjustments that allow them to swing through the ball in order to kind of cheat and try and pull the ball for more power. Um, and then we've seen Tulowitzki has become a, a more pull, pull conscious hitter, which is a normal thing for Toronto guys. I mean, guys go to Toronto and start pulling the ball all the time. But the thing about Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion that has made them special is they were been able to pull the ball for power while also avoiding strikeouts. Tulowitzki used to avoid strikeouts, and now he strikes out all the time. And this seems to be um, a 
a potential uh, concern in the in the fact that maybe in order to maintain his power, he is taking swings that are uh, less likely to lead to contact and uh, reducing himself, you know, reducing his overall value. In while, the while also doing, yeah. So, is this the sort of thing that, um, you know, do you expect, you know, for the time being to, like, I know, uh, for example, when I turned thirty, right? Yeah. It seemed like I gained ten pounds immediately, but then it things sort of plateaued, and it also is because maybe, uh, maybe I started to pay attention to it more and went to the gym ever once. <laughs> <laughs> is this uh, because I was like, well, I guess I can't do everything I'm doing and survive? But is that is that the sort of thing that uh, the, you expect there to be a plateau because maybe between the combination of uh, physical and mechanical changes, a player is able to you know kind of uh, thwart. Thwart the decline. Uh, I think thwarting decline is is challenging. I think players can change their skill set so they can like adjust to kind of like okay, what can I do well now? And they can say okay, maybe I can't. I don't have the bat speed I used to have. Maybe I can't hit the ball opposite field as far as I used to. So hitting opposite field fly balls is no longer valuable. So I need to start pulling those balls in the air. Uh, maybe if I want to, you know, continue to be a a good power hitter, I need to try and get out in front. I need to cheat a little bit. I need to guess occasionally. Um, so I think hitters can adapt their approach, but I think it's difficult to uh, completely offset the changes so that the negative outcomes that are related to just getting worse physically um, don't exist. Right. Now you also bring up um, you also bring up exit velocity um, I as, did, a, yes. as another as another possible yeah. way of documenting trouble. Um, I mean, it, it would seem to make sense to me that hitting the ball less hard is um, undesirable and hitting it more hard is desirable yeah. uh, do we know is it that is it that easy simple oh, that's pretty yeah it's basically <laughs> that simple hitting the ball hard is good okay um, now um, and do we know if it do we know why it might be happening to Troy Tulowitzki? because he does appear through the first whatever six weeks of this season to be hitting it less hard than yeah. uh, certainly relative to league average than he did last year even. Yeah, but, so I think the cause is difficult to pin down. Uh, I think anytime you're looking at a, you know, after 30 middle infielder, health has to be an issue. I mean, there's a, a pretty decent history of, uh, you know, early 30s middle infielders just watch their offensive uh, abilities disappear. Um, I think Roberto Alomar uh, was a pretty famous for a guy who was a really great player, and then he just wasn't one day. <laughs> um, Edgardo Alfonso, I think, made it to like 28. is like one of the better hitting second baseman in baseball, and then he was just atrocious overnight. So there are... Um, examples of guys who were really good hitters and then stopped being really good hitters for reasons that aren't so easy to explain. We don't want to say that's definitely the case with Tolitsky, but I will say the fact that the Rockies reversed course uh, last summer after traded and traded him after for a long time, saying they weren't going to, um, may, might suggest that they saw something that concerned them and they said, you know, this might be our last chance to deal him. This is like, uh, you know, we trade him now or never going to be able to trade him. And they didn't play very well in the second half of last year. He's not played very well in the first half of this year. There are some signs starting to stack up that say, uh, perhaps scouts are seeing something in his swing, whether it's bat speed, whether it's, you know, related to his hips. There were people in the comments who were suggesting perhaps it's his vision and he's just taking pitches down the middle and he's swinging at the wrong pitches and taking the wrong pitches. Um, perhaps there's a, selectivity issue, which uh, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be explained by aging. Usually we see hitters get more selective and their plate doesn't improves as they get older, um, but it possibly, maybe Troy Tolitsky's going blind. Who knows? That would be a, a very... real problem for the Blue Jays, yeah. if Tolitsky was going blind. Probably Troy Tolitsky wouldn't be psyched about it either. 
it seems like I think it would be difficult to play a quality shortstop if you were blind. It also seems as though um, going blind, uh, or like if you're going to be blind, that's the sort of thing you want to be born with. Because then you're like, oh, I'm blind. This is my reality. But if you go blind, that seems like it would be difficult. That's an interesting question. Would you be better off having some years of sight versus no years of sight? You're essentially arguing that, like, having the ability uh, would, for some period of time, is worse than not having it. Yeah, well, here's why. Because I, I'm guessing that those, like, first, whatever, the first five to ten years of your life, you would you would be very you would become, you would develop all of your skills, you know, except obviously you wouldn't have sight, but you would develop all the skills and senses you would need to compensate for it. Right. Um, I guess, yeah, if you had sight to begin your life and you didn't develop the extrasensory smell and and the improved hearing and all those things, then you lost it. Now you're just useless. Now you, well, yeah, I don't think you're useless. You can still, I'm sure you can still. <laughs> Sorry, any podcaster listening to this. Uh, no, you can still have a totally inspirational yeah. life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you can lead, I'm sure, but it's just more difficult, more difficult. Uh, yeah, it seems like you're probably correct. Yeah, right. And because I, I think that that's also the case for people who uh, who lose their hearing as well. And of course, that also necessitates. Well, just like when you're blind, you need to learn braille. Uh, um, learn, you know, losing your your hearing can be quite difficult. Uh, How many people who lost their hearing do you think are listening to this podcast? Well, maybe this is the, this is how they've chosen to spend their their few last days. If they've got just a little bit of hearing left, like what do I want to hear? I want to hear Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Brass. Yeah, that's right. Um, but only in a very short snippet. Well, let me ask you uh, now, just a, apart from the Tulowitzki thing, with the we're what six weeks now into expanded Statcast data? Is that right? Uh, sort of. I mean, so. Um, we're actually a year and six weeks in. Last year, there were some issues with the StatCast data, but Major League Baseball has actually cleaned a lot of those up. So now we have a little over a year and change of reliably quality StatCast data. Okay. Uh, we know – what do we know? What do we know that we that we have uh, – we might have uh, touched on it, you know, within the last couple of weeks, but what do we know about what it means for guys? What do, what do guys want? I mean, is there – I assume there's not only one way of doing things, but there must be – ways of doing things that are better than others. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess what does StatCast mean for the players themselves? Is that what you're asking? Well, like, what what are the ideal numbers? What do you want? Like a uh, exit velocity over X and a launch angle between X and X? I mean, yeah. So, like, I mean, as high as possible, really. Like <laughs> you want an exit velocity over 120. I mean, no. Like, that's John Carlos Stanton territory. Right. I mean, realistically, like, the league average is around 90 miles an hour. Okay. Uh, about 88, something like that. Um and uh, what an average launch angle uh, for a fly ball is uh, 25 to 50 degrees, I think. Yeah. Um, so really the ideal launch angle range is like that 20 to 30 degree range. That's like a, what they call a flyner sometimes. So mm-hmm. it's like in the air, elevated, um, but hit hard and hit pretty square. You don't want to hit it too high. You know, If you're up at like the 40, 50 degree angle, you probably just hit a, you'll hit a high pop fly. Um, but if you're closer to that 25, 26, 27 degree mark, that's kind of the ideal where the the performance is at its best. Um, so if you can hit a ball every single time at 27 degrees as hard as possible, you will be amazing. Uh, this is like, you know, if you can hit it 100 plus in that 25 degree range, you're probably hitting a home run. I think, was it uh, August Fagerstrom wrote last week um, in response to some comments that Chris Bryant had made where he was consciously attempting to, to and he along with the Cubs staff was con- uh, consciously attempting to lower his, Launch angle because it had been one of the higher ones in the league. 
Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely uh, a kind of a, a trade-off where you want a little bit of an uppercut in your swing because elevating the ball is much better than hitting the ball on the ground. Ground balls are, are bad for, mm-hmm. for big league hitters. So you want to get under the ball. But if you're hitting it too high, it's not going to get over the fence. And, and high fly balls are outs at a very high rate. So um, if you can get your launch angle into that 20 to 30 degree range, it's sort of like 30 to 35 degrees, more of your balls will fall in for hits. And if I'm so a, a baseball savant, uh, huh? which is uh, Darren Darren Willman's project. Uh, well, it was. I mean, it still is, but yeah. Darren Willman is now working for Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball essentially purchased Baseball Savant, so right. it's now a Major League Baseball product uh, that is maintained by Darren Willman. Okay, so if I go there, I could sort by number of things. I could sort by by max exit velocity and and average exit velocity. I could look yep. at exit velocity by by uh you know batted ball type whether it's in the air on the ground right. what, what if i want to sort these things to say like this guy's the best like i see if i sort by uh you know max exit velocity i see uh kike hernandez named third from <laughs> third from the top yeah he hit the ball hard once well no but this but this is uh oh yes right that's max so maybe max. i'm saying so some of the names in there i say well i'm a little bit skeptical these are definitely the best guys so if i go to average Yes, so max is just going to be n of one, right? So right. Like you're going to get more variation. Like, uh, you know, some guy can hit the ball hard once and not be able to do it over and over. Right, because something perfect worked out. Right, and we don't know how often he's hitting it in the air, for example, as opposed to on on the ground. If I go to average, I see Cameron Rupp's name is first. Of course, this is in fifty. This is a sample Eight, of fifty. Right. Yeah, maybe uh, raise your sample size. Okay, yeah, maybe I'll do that next. What do you? What should I raise it to? Uh, I would say hundred. Okay. At this point in the season. Okay. Do a lot of guys have 100 batted balls? Well, maybe they uh, do, yeah. Yeah, well, like probably guys have been playing regularly. Yeah, and have been <laughs> if they're and if they're not making that much contact, then yeah. they might have another problem. It seems like. Yeah, maybe I'll set it to 100. Oh, you want to know who's at 100 if I do this? Hey, uh, Josh Donaldson, that's pretty good. That's that's a, that's a good name. Anthony Rendon. Uh, that's a, an interesting name, and in that his production has been quite low. Has it? Yeah, he's not having a good year. Oh, he's not. I I was very optimistic about Anthony Rendon. He he had a five win season a couple of years ago. A couple, man, he's been pretty bad ever since. Yeah, that's too bad. Miguel Cabrera, very good. He, he's okay. Manny Machado, Kyle Seager, yeah. Victor Martinez, Nolan Arenado. These are very promising names. These are good hitters. Yeah, so I'm gonna go. What I'm gonna typically do now, I'm gonna go look at average EV exit velocity, and then I'm probably gonna make sure I set the minimum batted balls to a high enough number. Yeah, and then maybe write a post about how Cameron Rupp is kind of interesting. Okay, yeah. Uh, among this list, would you You're care... You're not going to do that, are you? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to write about broadcaster rankings. Ah. Well, maybe some of those broadcasters will improve their rankings by talking about Cameron Rupp's exit velocity. You know, I th- I definitely have her. I, you know, well, of course, um, we talked about Chris Bryant. The Cubs broadcast team uh, features Lynn Casper and Jim Deshays, both who are very... But they're they're great to listen to. Right. They they it's it They're analytically aware... Uh, but they're also they get along quite well. There's a great uh, the great rapport between them. There's a lot of banter. And you know what is great about both of them is that they're not afraid to be wrong. And if you're talking for three hours a day for 162 days, you're gonna be wrong at some point. So you might as well just own it. Is this your life philosophy? Yo, don't, yeah. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Oh, it's not even. Don't be afraid. Run, run towards it. Uh, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, it explains a lot. Yeah, I want to really want to. Like a pig in slop, you know. Really want to. Uh, there's this. What is it? There's a word that, that to describe pigs when they're all rolling around in the mud. What is that? 
Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Hey, listen, my wife has a student coming over to make um, puppy panna. Sh- no, shock a lot in a moment. So I have to uh, get off this uh, podcast. Okay. Well, hopefully you enjoy your panna shock a lot. Hey, let me ask you one question that's slightly yeah. irrelevant. You mentioned you mentioned your neighbors when you moved into your neighborhood the, for the yeah. first the first time. How did you introduce yourself to your neighbors? Uh, well, or did you? My scenario is slightly weird in that when we bought this house, uh, it was a foreclosure, so mm-hmm. we had to do a bunch of remodels before we could move into it. Yeah. And then about seven or eight days after we got here, I got cancer and went to the hospital for a long time. Okay. So one of the first ways we introduced ourselves to the neighbor who lives next to us is by telling her that I was in the hospital <laughs> and uh, asking if she would mow her lawn, which she then told her son to mow her lawn, which was nice. Okay, yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you get along with those folks? We do. Yeah, they're yeah. very nice. Yeah. They went on lawn while I was in the hospital, so because you had like cancer. <laughs> yeah, right. It was it was nice of them. Now, did you did you repay the favor? Or I have just... never once mowed their lawn. Oh. <laughs> but we we've given them I don't know cookies and we get their mail when they're out of town and we are neighborly in other ways. Well, I want to be clear about it. Um, I don't. I would prefer not to get cancer after moving. I, I recommend not getting cancer. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah I'm not into that really. So I'll have to find a different strategy. Your your end of one is not helpful. <laughs> I will say when new neighbors have moved in, so like the people who I was talking with the other day, they're the third people who lived in this house next to us on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you've owned yours? Yes. Uh, this house has, has flipped a few times. Wow. Uh, so generally what we've done is uh, we really like the Ghirardelli chocolate chip cookie mix. Okay. Uh, I don't know if people have had it before, but uh, if you can get your hands uh, – if you. It's they're they're better than the cookies you can make yourself, and it's obviously much easier because you're just using a box mix. Uh, so generally, we will make a plate of Ghirardelli chocolate chip cookies mm-hmm. and take them to our neighbors and be like, "Welcome to the neighborhood. These are delicious." And uh, you know, it's worked once because these people have stuck around. It didn't work with the previous people; they only stuck around for like a month. No, how have now when other neighbors have moved in? How have if if they've initiated contact or have they initiated contact? If so, how have they done it? Yeah, I mean, I think what we found is that the best thing we did to get to know our neighbors was have a dog. So, like, yeah, okay. by walking your dog every day, you meet mm-hmm. a lot of people who also walk their dogs or just out playing in their yards or planting yards or whatever. And then our dog has uh, an electric fence, so occasionally or regularly she will lounge in the front yard and uh, beg for belly rubs as people walk by. Okay. So then their kids become attached to our dog, and then they like us because their kids like our dog. We actually had one of our neighbors a couple of years ago dressed up as our dog for Halloween. Not yeah, just okay. a general dog, but like actual our your, actual dog. Your dog specifically. That was that was his Halloween costume. So how's Halloween in your neighborhood? It's amazing because we have uh, sidewalks on both sides of the street, okay. um, and it's not a through street, so it's like very few cars. So people bust themselves into our neighborhood in order to to let their kids walk safely on the sidewalks. Okay, yeah, sounds yeah. good. Yeah, it, I guess it's amazing if you have kids who you want to do that with. It's not so amazing if you're trying to save money on candy. Do you do Christmas? Do you do Christmas ornaments? We do. Yeah, we don't uh, do like the big display in yeah. the front yard. Like I don't have any holiday holiday do. ornaments. Yeah, right now, yeah. I we put up a tree okay. and we string some lights, but I I don't want my house to look like uh, you know something out of a movie. And what about weeding? Uh, I don't I don't like gardening. I don't like yard work. I don't I don't enjoy it. Do you, uh, hi- do you hire I, someone? 
Yeah, I mean, occasionally what will happen is that my wife will say, our yard looks terrible, when are you going to mow the lawn? Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I'll get to it, and then and then I'll hire someone so that I stop getting yelled at. Well, you don't just have, like, a service that comes periodically? We have a guy who's, like, the lawn guy for the neighborhood, and I'll tell him, like, I got yelled at, please, uh, please, yeah. you know, come save me from my marital dispute. Yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, I, luckily, uh, the, uh, my yard's small enough, so I think I can do it pretty easily, but... All right. Just wondering about how to introduce myself. Um, yeah. I mean, the fact that you have a dog will help. And yeah. I would say bring food to neighbors, knock on their door and say, mm-hmm. hello, neighbor. Here's yeah. some cookies. All right. I'm going to do it. Give some cookies away. I was thinking of doing – of offering a, a, two different types of cookies. One that I would describe as American cookies, which are just like, you know, like Toll House out of the box. And then do like com- hippie communist cookies too. That are like, you know, gluten free and that sort of thing. And give them both so that people can feel like if they want the healthier or the less healthy one, they can have either. Mm. Right, right that's, that. that's an interesting idea. Maybe you should uh, make the American cookies out of Budweiser. Okay. This, 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 this. All right. We're done here. Hey, Cameron, thank you so much for your contribution. You're You've, welcome. You fulfilled your obligation. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>